You know, for the last three Sundays, we've been thinking about prayer and the power of prayer and the importance of it in these days that are so frustrating to many people. But I want to tell you the incessant obstacle that most of us pursue is keeping our hearts and our lives clean enough to speak honestly with our Lord so that He hears us. Now, it's not that He has a hearing problem at all. It's that we have a living problem because we distance ourselves from Him so many times. We all want to pray effectively. We want the, the, to understand that scriptural assurance that, that He hears our prayers. But I'm not talking about a difficulty in God's hearing, but a difficulty in our coming alongside Him, clean and prepared to speak from our heart. We want to know that our prayers are heard, e even if they're not answered as we expect. We, we want to know that they're heard. And so many people today tell me that, that they pray and they don't feel like God is there. Now, there are a lot of books written on prayer, and I've read a lot of them. There, there are, are many good books that are written, and there's some that just simply aren't true. But I want to think about what Scripture says about prayer and, and truly how we can understand the importance of that. Sometimes we wonder if God really understands who and what we are, and yet we forget that He made us, and we're made in His image Jesus himself was tempted as we are tempted. And he was able to withdraw and say no and to keep focused on the goal set before him. Scripture helps us to check and to see what our problems are. And if we'll stay constant and consistent with our study of Scripture and our prayer, God will clean our heart out. And he'll lead us to the things that we need to confess and forsake. Billy Graham once noted that prayer is, is not using God. It is more about God using us and putting ourselves in that potential of being used of our Creator. He told a story about watching the great uh, SS United States, the, the ocean liner, take off one time. It was built back in the 50s and in its day, it was the fastest ocean liner to travel the Atlantic between uh, Western Europe and, and uh, Canada and America. And it was an amazing ship to watch. And, and he told about, he said, that, that they threw out a rope to the men on the dock. And then inside the boat, the great motors turned on and the cables were pulling them. And it was amazing that he said when they turned on those motors, it did not move the dock over to where the ship was, but it brought the ship to where the dock was. And he said, that's how prayer works. It's the rope that pulls us together with God, but it displaces us from a human place to a heavenly place. It doesn't pull God down to us. It pulls us up to God. And we must learn to say with Christ, not my will, but thine be done, Father. How, how can we do that, and how can we clean our lives up so that we will have that kind of relationship? Because many people pray and continue to pray. And the problem is not God's ability to hear or to act on their behalf, but it's their inability to pull themselves up near God and confess their sins and forsake them and make that relationship right that maybe is an error 
to a brother or sister in Christ. First, I want you to notice this. In order to have effective prayer life, you need to realize that unconfessed sin is an obstacle that will always be in your way until it is resolved. The 66th Psalm says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The Scripture was penned by David, and David was a man that knew a lot about sin. He was not perfect. He made many mistakes. But here's what's amazing about him. He always came back to God. Wherever he drifted to, he confessed his sins and he came back to God. When he wronged a brother or sister, he incessantly attempted to make things right. Remember the relationship with his father-in-law Saul and the struggles that he had and how he tried again and again and again to restore that relationship. Even though Saul would not allow that to happen, God honored David's commitment toward that. And that is what is so important. David sinned, but he repented, and then he came back to God in obedience. God will not reward rebellion. He never does. He said that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Think about that. God can choose to hear and answer the prayer of a sinner. Otherwise, we could never become saved. All of us at some point were lost and we prayed for forgiveness. But I'm not talking about a lost person praying and seeking God. I'm talking about a Christian, somebody that's given their heart to God, who's accepted the gift of salvation. Their sins are covered in the blood, yet they continue to sin by holding an ought against their brother, letting a wall stand there. You cannot be obsessed with wrongs in your life and ever communicate anything right to God. You've got to be willing to resolve that and move away from it. God, God wants to have a relationship with you, but you cannot entertain wickedness in your life. You must be willing to listen. There's a great difference between a stranger ignoring you and a family member ignoring you. And when you're a part of the family of God and you ignore the call of God for you to confess and forsake sins, that hurts deeply and it separates greatly. In Proverbs, King Solomon said, If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. Now think about that. When you're willing to let sin stand between you and God, God sees your prayers as detestable, hypocritical, self-centered, self-serving, not sacrificial or giving. The Message Bible says it this way, God has no use for the prayers of the people who won't listen to Him. Think about that. God has no use for the prayers of the people who won't listen to Him. An evil lifestyle with unconfessed sins deliberately going on in a pattern of ignoring or rejecting God's law will absolutely stop the flow of your relationship in prayer with God. It will do that every time. It's frightening. I've told you before that I had a church 
member in, in Zebulun, Georgia, who was a unique man. He was a salesman and apparently a very good salesman because he was a multimillionaire. He had started out working for his brother and worked his way up and became very successful. But the man had one problem. We knew he was saved. He had told us about that, and we understood that, but he had a problem. His problem was he lied. Not only did he lie, but he enjoyed lying. In fact, as one man in the church said, he pointed at him, he said, that fellow right there would rather climb up a grease flagpole backwards and tell a lie than stand on flat ground and tell the truth. And he wasn't kidding. This man would lie when the truth fit better than his lie. I had an occasion with him in a disaster in, in a family relationship when everything fell apart and his heart was willing to listen. We talked about that. And amazingly, he told me this. He said, here's the problem with lying. He said, I grew up as the kid that everybody ignored. He said, I wasn't handsome, I wasn't gifted, I wasn't the firstborn, I wasn't special in any way. And, and he said, I found out early on that if I would kind of build things up or embroider the truth, I'd get noticed. And he said, when you do something for over 60 years, it sticks with you. I talked to him about forgiveness and the importance of that. And how it's not so important what people think of you, but what God thinks of you. And he prayed a prayer that people thought he would never pray. And he asked God to forgive him for all the many sins. And he said, God, I could not even number them. But I know that you can forgive me of every one of them. And he sought that out. Not only did he do that, he came back to the church and he confessed. And he forsook that and he changed. He called on the church to help him be accountable. And I explained to them that doesn't mean to remind him when he's lying. That means to be his friend when he's praying and stand by him to encourage him to stay away from that sin. And it was amazing the difference it made in that man's life, the difference it made in that community of faith. Everything was changed because of that. Psalm 66 says, If I cherish sin in my heart, and the Lord would not have listened, but God has surely listened and heard my voice. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer nor withheld his love from me. That's the God that hears our prayers. But I want you to notice this also. Not just that we need to come and pray to him and have our hearts channeled open to him, but secondly, forgiveness without limits is available. Did you hear me? Forgiveness without limits is available. You know, many times you'll be allowed to make certain infractions in life, in a friendship or, or in, in a family or in a marriage, and after a certain point, you're not forgiven anymore. Because you're seen sort of like the, the, way the, uh, the way the law reads it. If you commit so many DUIs, you're called a habitual offender. And some people look at others as habitual offenders, but, but God doesn't see that. How many times should we forgive someone who sins against us? This is what Simon Peter asked Jesus. Jesus said... I do not say to you up to seven times, 
but 70 times 7. A woman one time who had a, 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 a very wandering husband said, I figured it up, 70 times 7 is about how many times my husband has done that, and I'm ready for some judgment and justice. And I had to explain to her the expression 70 times 7 is a euphemism that means forever, every time. Not just 490 times, but every time. God wants us to know that he's not giving us a mathematical or legalistic limitation on forgiveness. Rather, he is teaching us that forgiveness should be without limit because truly forgiveness moves the closest to restore what is broken by mankind. God's forgiveness towards us works in the same way. And I remind you that Jesus made it plain that as we forgive others, he will forgive us. Many a life is battered and tormented from a lack of forgiveness of sin because they have held on to grievances others have committed against them. And God has not forgiven them to restore that relationship. They've used a cursory statement in their prayer, God forgive me of my sins, yet they didn't enumerate their sins. They didn't identify their sins. They didn't go back and make things right with those who they had wronged. And I think that it's important for us to do that. Three times in my life and in my ministry, I've had people come back to me and ask for forgiveness. And all three times, I was so overwhelmed by the heartfelt presence of Jesus in their doing that that I couldn't help but do that. I have had to go to others and say, will you forgive me for what I've done? And I've never been turned down for that. I had one person that said, let me pray about it. And I said, oh, don't worry. God's already got this worked out. If you'll talk to him, he'll work it out. But I believe with all my heart that God wants us to be a people who forgive and will know the limits of what he is willing to give to us and the blessings that he will offer. If we are children of our Heavenly Father, we must forgive others in the same manner that God forgave us. We cannot be a reflection of Jesus by doing anything else. It is clear we must forgive others, but what is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? How do we actually forgive someone? By forgiving the way the Bible teaches, we can be free of the pain and the injury someone has caused us. And we can be healed of that pain by our Heavenly Father. When I was growing up, there was no such thing as, as wound care. But that's a whole section of, of, of medicine today is wound care because they understand that some wounds just don't heal. And there's a specialty that's practiced by certain nurses and doctors, and they're good at that because I've watched them heal people that had a situation that just would not go away. God is an expert at healing wounds. And he's taught us that forgiveness is an act of the will. It's not a matter of a few words. It's not a matter of looking at somebody and saying, oh, I don't hold it against you. That's not what it's about. 
Forgiveness is not always offered to someone that's willing to forgive you, but you forgive them anyway because it releases that frustration in your mind that Satan uses as a tool to take you back to that moment and open up a wound that is not healed. And what you have to do is turn that over to God and say, God, I can't live with this. I forgive that person. And I've gone to them and they've said no. When you do that and someone, and I, like I said, I, I had somebody say they waited one day. But if you go to someone and seek forgiveness and they don't want to forgive you, you're set free. Move on. Pray for that person. Lift them up before God often. But love them as if the grievance never occurred. That's what God expects us to do. We've got to remember that forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness means letting go of the wrong. It means you don't carry a memory of what happened back then. If you can sit down and you can recollect or write down a, a fault that someone had against you sometime before, you're remembering too much. When God says your sins are remembered no more, he means that. But when you hold an ought to your brother, your sins are not forgiven. They are remembered by God. Forgiveness is an act involving a choice in not only our mind but in our heart. And it means we restore what was broken there. We go back to where things once were. We, we restore and return to fellowship with that person. And that's so important because our returning to fellowship with them is a part of the healing that they go through. Who are you thinking of today that you struggle with in a relationship? That you've said something hastily or you've put up that invisible wall that everybody sees but you, the wall of avoidance, the wall of judgment, the wall of critical spirits. All, all these things are part of an unforgiving spirit. And the bad thing is this, while you're doing that, you're not hurting that other person. If that's your goal, you, you failed. You're hurting yourself. It changes who and what you are. My mentor in the faith, Dr. Monroe Swilly, told me one time, that he said after 51 years in ministry, he said, I can spot a bitter soul that's unforgiving about 100 yards away. He said there's something about the look on their face and their inability to come together as a part of the body of Christ and love and, and freely enjoy people because they become so wrapped up in the bitterness and what happened to them. I believe with all my heart that probably one of the greatest hobbies in Selma, Alabama is being a victim. Whether you're a victim to somebody that said something cruel to you or you're a victim of, of someone you can't even name, somebody out there that's held you back from being what you thought you should be. The amazing thing about being a victim is it's not your fault. You don't have to feel any sense of blame for that. And secondly, there are no stipulations about how you can be rewarded for what was done to you. 
How do you ever find forgiveness and restoration when the person you're walking toward is walking away from you and they're going toward a deeper bitterness and an unforgiving spirit? I've always chuckled at the idea of reparations. Growing up with a foster dad who was 100% Sioux Indian, both of his parents were, were Sioux Indians, and my dad was a Christian as a young boy. And he made a statement one day talking with a group of folks in Atlanta who were talking about back in the 60s and 70s the idea of reparations. And my dad chuckled and said this. He said, if America ever decides to make reparations for those they've wounded, he said, my family's in line first. And once you get through paying the American Indian, there's nothing else left. But he said, I as a Christian have chosen not to focus on that, but to focus on the future. He said, I have decided that life is too important to spend it being angry at someone somewhere out there that you've never seen, you've never encountered, you will never know in this life. He said, no, there's some things better buried and forgotten. I learned an important lesson from my dad about that. God gave him to me when I needed him most to understand the idea of forgiveness. But lastly, I want you to realize this. Putting forgiveness into practice restores your power in prayer. If you don't feel like you pray and God hears you, if you feel like somehow there's something standing between you and God, it may very well be something that you place there. And we've got to learn as children of God that forgiveness is so important. When dealing with spiritual matters like forgiveness, the follower of Christ also needs a sincerity of heart. Now, that's tough for Southerners. You do know that. I mean, we can be walking down the street and a car could have run over us and broke both legs and we could be bloody and somebody would walk by and say, Hi, how are you doing? You say, Oh, I'm fine. Because we're Southerners. We're supposed to be polite. But you know what? Sometimes that's not honest. Sincerity of heart matters with God. A humble, open, teachable attitude matters to God. Don't enter into any relationship assuming that you are the smartest person in the room because you're not. The smartest person in the room is the Holy Spirit. And we forget that as Christians. A genuine desire to see God's priorities of love, unity, and reconciliation and righteousness in our relationships have to be there. We have to pursue that. We have to incessantly pursue that because if we don't, it will slip away from us. I've used a weird description of what it's like to walk with God on a daily basis and confess your sins and stay restored. And, and some people don't appreciate this because it doesn't sound like something that was given out in medieval times by some ancient monk sitting under a candle writing. But here's my idea of what it means to walk with God on a daily basis. When I was a young child, our greatest hobby, and I say that, loosely hobby, was to go to Greenbrier Mall, which was the first covered mall in the eastern United States. It was in Atlanta, Georgia. And in that mall, we had two escalators that were not guarded by anybody. 
One traveled down to where the uh, movie theater was and another traveled up out of there. So our hobby during the summer was to go out there and run up the escalator backward to see if we could make it all the way. You ever done that before? I hope you have. If you haven't, you've missed a joy in life. But here's what's amazing. Walking with God and living with Him is like running up that escalator against the resistance. If you stop running, what do you do? You go backward. You don't stay right where you are. You go backward. There's a word that's used for that that's not scriptural, but it's very accurate. We call it backsliding. Backsliding means that you're not purifying your life uh, of sin. You're not confessing to your brothers and sisters you've wronged. You just let everything grow stagnant. And by doing that, you go backward. And that's exactly what happens in the life of the believer that's not willing to constantly cleanse their life and prepare it for where God wants them to go. The only way to get beyond this is to ask God to reveal to you what is in your heart because we become so blinded at times to what's going on. He will reveal to us the reality of where we are. And only he, he can do that. I mean, it, it's as real as... Watching yourself on a video or listening to yourself on an audio recording after it's over with, it's an awkward thing to do. I'm so glad that, that Charlie Duckett relieved me of, of the need to do a Sunday school lesson this week. He came in and recorded a lesson for uh, the, the folks over at Cedar Hill, and he did that, but... We were talking about how awkward that was, and, and I, don't, I don't like my voice. I don't even like a picture of myself, and I certainly don't want to watch a video. Um, I had a, a, a music minister that was quite a unique fella years ago in North Georgia, and he picked up this microphone, he leaned over into it, and we were, we were live on television. He said, don't you just love the sound of your own voice? 480 people yelled out, no, <laughs> we don't. Most people don't. And because of that, we're blind to our own inadequacies and sins. We seem to cover that over and ignore it. Ask God and he will open your eyes and reveal the truth to you. Then repent of that sin. Repent doesn't mean to say, I did it. It means to confess it and walk away from it. The word repent, you know, means literally do a 180. Turn and walk away from the sin. Do a U-turn. And sometimes we forget the importance of doing that. And then make a choice to forgive those who have wronged you. And take time to pray for them and lift them up. Because God is waiting for us to be prayerful and honest and sincere. And don't think, and I've heard people say, oh, God could never forgive me. I've been sinning for X number of years, and there's no way God could forgive me. And I always say the same thing. I said, you don't understand the value of the blood of Jesus and what he accomplished. Don't be so arrogant as to think that your sins are worse than anybody else's. We must be a people who understand 
that a God as great as the one that created us and loved us and sent his son to die for us is able to forgive us of our sins and to restore us where he wants us to be. Napoleon and his soldiers had chosen to conquer a small island out in the Mediterranean. The people on that island didn't even expect them to show up there. They thought, we're not that important, and ours is a very agricultural area. They won't come here. But it was a valuable island because on it there were minerals and spices that were needed. And over a period of 11 days, Napoleon and his army conquered that island. It was a bloody war. But after they'd had their conquest and they'd gone in to the largest house there on the island and had a celebration, in the midst of that celebration, as the generals were gathered around Napoleon, in walked a little lieutenant that had been on the middle lines there. And he walked up to Napoleon, and everybody looked and thought, what are you doing here? And Napoleon said, what do you want? The young man stood up and looked him right in the eye, and he said, give me this island. They said there was a hush in the room. Several snickered and laughed, but most were just terrified because they knew what would probably come next. Not even not even a slap across the face was worthy of anything like this. He most likely would die. Napoleon turned to one of his aides. He had him come close to him, and they thought, surely he's writing out the man's death warrant. But Napoleon turned to him and handed him a deed to the island. He said, young man, this island is yours. We conquered it, now you manage it. As the young man walked out, the, the generals looked and they said, how could you do that? What made you think that because he could walk up and ask for that, you could just give that to him? And Napoleon Bonaparte said this. He said, I gave him this island because he honored me with the magnitude of his request. That young man managed that island successfully and freely for the rest of his life. Maybe our problem is we don't know how to come before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and offer a request that it has such a magnitude that others can't understand it. But that's exactly what, what was said in this passage of Scripture because they said, if you say, move that mountain, and you believe in your heart, meaning that your, your prayer and your life is focused on God and you confess your sin and you're so close to the Spirit of God that whatever you ask would be what He wants. It'll happen. That's the power in prayer. And as many huddle and hide, as many count the numbers daily and momentarily on television, of those who have suffered and died of a virus. A disease we can't even see. I call on you to trust in a God. Go to your closet in private. Kneel and pray to Him. And He will answer your prayers. And the God who cannot be seen with human eyes will do things that every human will see. And the power of God will be resolute in your life 
as you are faithful to him. And you will be changed as you change others. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you give to us so great a salvation. And we understand that the potential of prayer is centered totally and absolutely in you. We've got to understand that there's always that incessant obstacle of sin in our lives. But you have given us a way of escape to confess and to forsake it. You've told us to go to others that we have wronged and make, thing, make things right. And we trust you to do that in our lives. And right now, Lord, I pray that you would speak to someone, someone who's struggling because they feel that they don't have the power of prayer that they need. And may they make things right with God and restore that relationship, to take that relationship to a place that maybe it's never been before. And we know that you, as our Heavenly Father, will take us there. We love you, Lord. And we thank you that you abide with us through all the storms of life. And even in this coronavirus storm, you are here with us, loving us and leading us safely to the other side. And we pray this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.